Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the book of Hebrews. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. I saw a picture in the paper this week of a young woman dressed in average contemporary looking bell-bottom jeans and a casual top, standing in the middle of a street holding an AK-47 at a car. And there was such a I hate to use big words, but such a juxtaposition between her looking just like somebody I'd see on the streets around here and her holding this AK-47 pointing at a car. She was a rebel soldier in Liberia uh, trying to stop something from going on. Part of those who are have been working to overthrow the president of Liberia, as I understand it. Surely, if you've read and, uh, and heard in recent months, uh, you have heard of the brutal deaths and the terrible things that are going on in Liberia. And I don't know about you, but as I have read that, some, I've just, I, have, I hear so much of that that after a while I just have to turn the page in the paper. I can't read anymore. But I also have an overwhelmingly an overwhelming blessing from that, if you will, and that is I just think, what a great privilege I have to live here. I mean, I, the furthest thing from my mind, the greatest, the, the most fantastic, outrageous thing I could ever imagine is that something like that would happen in Ferndale. It just, just you know, it, it is the other side of the world, and that's how I see it, and I think, wow, what a great blessing I have to, to live in this country that certainly is far from perfect, but I'm not worried about somebody pulling an AK-47 on me when I stop for the bridge closer. As I read Hebrews 9, the last half, I am overwhelmed with the spiritual blessing that is mine. Just tremendous things that I don't deserve. Follow as I read Hebrews 9:15 through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> For this reason, and if we were to go back, we'd find out the reason is because Jesus offered himself the pure, perfect sacrifice. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. 
Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven, that is, those things on the earth, should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Now, if you're like me, when you read the book of Hebrews, especially a passage like this, sometimes the detail and the, the logical nature of uh, the logical pattern of the writing is so overwhelming that it's hard to grasp the, the, the central messages that God is trying to get across to us. Verse 15 is the first great truth of this passage. It, there are so many things here that we could spend time on, but I want to just hit this tremendous truth in verse 15. Look at it again with me, please. For this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. This verse reinforces what other verses teach throughout the scripture, which is this simple truth. Those who come to know Christ as Savior, who become God's children, are called to it by God. As I studied it this week and I thought, how can I explain to folks what it means to be called by God? A new concept of explanation came to me. I thought, this is, this is exactly what God is telling us. Here's what it is. Your salvation is no accident. That's really the truth. People get all worked up over this truth but the central truth is this, it's not an accident you're a Christian. Dare I say, if you're here today and you've never believed in Christ as your Savior, it's not an accident that you're here. Because you're going to hear the truth of God today. When did God call us? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. This is the most incredible truth. If we can let it sink in. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he, number one, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Just as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world, before God created this terra firma on which we stand, he said, I want Dave Lunsford. I want Glenn Goulet, and I want Chuck Heath, and I want Cindy Heath, and so on, so on, so on. He said, those are the, I'm calling them. Man, before he even created the world, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What did he choose us for? He chose us that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, he predestined us to the adoption of sons. Predestination is simply this. God has predetermined that we will arrive at the character of Jesus Christ. He chose us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which, by which he made us accepted in the beloved or in the presence of God. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, that is, he revealed his truth to us, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in the earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. God exists outside of time. We need to remind ourselves about that sometimes. God exists. In the beginning, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and so on. And pretty soon he says, and then he created a great light to rule the day and a lesser light to rule the night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. There were no days. There were no nights. There was no time until God created it. And we can barely fathom that God exists outside of time. He is eternal. His lifeline has arrows on both ends. No beginning and no end. And so when we consider God's choosing of us, of course he chose us before the foundation of the world because for him, he stands outside of time watching all that he has created. God envisioned everything that we know as our world. He saw that Lucifer, a created finite being, one of his angels, would commit the first sin through his desire to be worshipped. He saw how Lucifer would tempt Adam and Eve and how the first two humans, our parents, would respond in sin. And so he saw the need for a savior. And he saw the truth that we read in Ephesians 2, verse 1. Look there, please. And you he hath made alive who were dead or totally controlled, overrun, in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, that's Lucifer, Satan, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and we were by nature 
children of wrath, just as others, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. There are a lot of folks who get really upset about this Bible doctrine of election or choosing by God. But the simple truth is this, folks. If God didn't choose you, you wouldn't have chose him. If God didn't choose me, I wouldn't have chose him because I was so overrun in my sin. God called us in eternity past. He called us because if he hadn't, none of us would have come to him. Now, I, I will readily accept and understand that oftentimes people will express a desire that they are trying to know the Lord. They are trying to come to the Lord. And I say, amen, that's exactly right. Jesus said this in John 6, 44, no man comes to me except the Father who sent me draws him. So if you're in a period in your life when you're saying, I'm trying to know the Lord, it's not an accident. That's what the call of God is. It's God working in your life in all kinds of ways, including placing that desire that you go and find the real truth of life. You see all the foolishness all around us in our world, in our society, and you think this surely can't be all there is, and so you seek more. But the very reason you're seeking is because God is calling. He's saying, come on. Sometimes God calls in very harsh ways. Some tragedy happens. Sometimes God calls in very... Very quiet ways. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. I want to look at a time when God shouted. Because I think it really helps us understand this truth of the call of God. Acts chapter 9. You, you'll be familiar with this person, if not the story. Then Saul, Acts 9, 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Okay, here's a guy who lived to stamp out the way, as they referred to it in that time. His, he, he was breathing threats and murder. Uh, we would call it state-sanctioned murder. Because the, the, the civil authority of Israel, which was under the civil authority of Rome, had said they'd given him letters, they'd given him permission to go find Christians and put them in jail, and apparently even to, to execute them. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that he, if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul answered, Who are you, Lord? 
And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. There's a very simple truth here, folks. I hope you can grasp it. Saul didn't want to know Jesus. Have we missed that in this story? Here's a guy going down the road saying, Going to get me some Christians. Going to put them in jail. Going to throw them to the lions. And I'm not exaggerating, folks. This guy was hacked off about Christianity. And boom, God intervenes in his life. And he says, hey, buddy, I want you. Now, if that's not the call of God, I don't know what is. And do you know what? That's what happens in every one of our lives. Sometimes it's a lot less dramatic. I was four years old. And God called to me through my Sunday school teacher who said, would you like to have Jesus in your heart? I went, yeah. But I don't think I got up that morning thinking, I'm going to find Jesus today. God calls us to salvation because if he didn't call, we'd be just like Saul, right on the path to destruction. God called you to salvation. And you know what the miracle of that is, if you haven't figured this out already? Take an inventory of your life. Take an inventory of your life since you've known the Lord. And how much sin and righteousness there has been. How much selfishness and service there has been. And look at that and say, why would God call me? But don't stop there. Go on and say, God called me. God wanted me. And he did what it took to get me saved. Friends, I want to say it again. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, it is not an accident. God is calling through his people, through this church, through his servant here, through his word. Whosoever will may come. The, 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 the paradox of Scripture that we can't get our mind around is that God says he has worked in an efficacious way to bring people to himself and yet at the same time, he says, go out and preach the gospel to all men, whosoever will may come. And I just want to say, if you're here today, God is working in your life, whether you think he is or not. And I would encourage you not to wait till God has to shout from heaven like he did with the Apostle Paul. No, I, I don't think he's literally going to shout from heaven. I think he's going to shout from your circumstance. What has he called us to? In Hebrews 9, it is verbalized as an inheritance, an eternal inheritance. God has promised us eternal heaven. 1 Peter 1.4 puts it this way, we have been called to an inheritance which is incorruptible, that is, it cannot decay or, or be lost, it is undefiled or completely pure, and it will not fade away. An inheritance that won't fade away. God has given us heaven, a place in heaven, a person himself in heaven. 
Wow. He has called us to that. And beyond that, of course, he has called us to know him personally here, to have the Holy Spirit inside, empowering our life, guiding us, giving us his peace even in the midst of difficulty. Back in the day when I was in school, in PE class, they chose teams for team sports by lining everybody up and picking the two most athletic boys and say, okay, you two pick teams. And my dream, my desire, my wish, my fervent prayer to God was not to be picked last. I know you can't believe this, but I wasn't that athletic back then. You know what the good news is, folks? We were all picked in God's first round. Nobody's picked last. If you've accepted Christ, you were picked in the first round. If you've not accepted Christ and you're here, you may be part of that. God wants you to respond in faith to what we're going to learn about next, which is not only did God call us to salvation, but Christ has paid for our salvation. Turn back to Hebrews 9 if you're not there already. He uses this, could I use the term motif or this, this way of communicating through the inheritance? And as he goes on in verse 16, he says, where there is a testament. The Bible word for covenant from the, from the Greek language of the day would have been the same word used for a will. Um, we use the term today, last will and testament. Okay, it's, the, it's the same word. And here he turns the diamond a little bit to see a different facet. He says, where there is a testament, there must of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is, is in force after men are dead, since it has no power while the testator lives. And he goes on then to talk more about uh, blood sacrifice and about death. And I, I believe the simple truth of, of, of the scripture is this. There is a principle of payment for sin which is required by God. God says, oh yes, I'm calling you to salvation. I want you to have eternity in heaven. I want you to have help right now. But there is something that has to be done first. Your sin has to be paid for. It is the roadblock to the inheritance. If we look at verse 22, we see this. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and with the, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Now, he's referring to the Old Testament there, and when he says almost all things are purified with blood, he's not saying that there are some things which are unable to be purified. What he's saying is in the Old Testament law, the ritual worship law, there were rituals of cleansing. And some of those involved sprinkling blood to cleanse it, and, and, and it was all symbolic, but some of it involved sprinkling blood, some of it involved washing with water. There were several different kinds, but many, if not most of them, according to this verse, involved the sprinkling of blood, the cleansing with blood. But he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness. There are a couple different words translated as forgiveness in the New Testament. This is one of them. It literally means to put away or to take away. God says that when you accept Christ as your Savior, 
your sins are remitted or they go into remission. When a person has cancer and we say they are in remission, we understand that the cancer has the cancer itself has died away and is no longer affecting the person at that point in time. God says he has put your sins into remission. The difference between your sin and cancer is that when God puts it into remission, it doesn't come back. He puts it away. The Old Testament says as far as the east is from the west. God does not forget your sin because God cannot forget. But what does God do? He stops holding it against you. He stops holding it against you. And when he decides he is not going to hold it against you, because the payment has been made, then that is it. This verse, uh, Hebrews 9.22, is based on the truth of Leviticus 17.11, which summarizes God's standard by this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. From the first sin, blood was required for payment. How did God solve the problem of the newly recognized nakedness of Adam and Eve? He covered them with what? Coats of skin. They covered themselves with fig leaves. God covered them with coats of skin, which required the death of those animals. I believe that was a, a precursor, a preview to what was going to come and that God always reveals his truth in that way. Here, the, the killing of an animal to provide clothing. And as we go on, we come to the sacrifice in the Old Testament. Blood was offered under the Old Covenant. And that's what verses 16 through 21 are all about. He says in verse 18, Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken everything and so on, he goes through this and he explains a little bit. He what he does, for those of you that will, will study in detail, is you will not find this referred to in exact detail here from the Old Testament. You will find that this is a summary of all of the work that was done under the ritual law in the Old Testament. He pulls it all together to tell us, look, it required the sprinkling of the blood of an animal in this time frame. But even then, what happened was atonement or covering. Several authors that I read put it this way. God forgave on credit. Looking forward to what we are going to read about in verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven. We learned last week that in heaven is the real temple of God, the real altar of God. And God allowed Moses to see that. And he said, make copies of that on earth. The Old Testament tabernacle and later the temple with the Ark of the Covenant and the other things that were there were copies of the true in heaven. He said the earthly things had to be purified with blood, but the heavenly things have to be purified with better sacrifices. Verse 23. What could be better? There's nothing better on earth. There's nothing better. But verse 24 tells us what is better. What is the perfect payment for sin? For Christ has not entered into the holy places, that is the earthly tabernacle made with hands, which is a copy of the true one, but he has entered into the true one in heaven to appear in the presence of God for us. The first 
part of this perfect payment for sin is this. Christ's payment was made in the real temple. He talks about the heavenly things, the true, the heaven. talks about the presence of God. Some, uh, something that I learned this week as I studied this, I'm learning many things as I go through the book of Hebrews. One of the commentators referred to Revelation 19.11, which says the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple. I haven't fully gotten my mind around the fact that God has a temple in heaven. Now, I can't tell you all about what that is because God hasn't told me. But when Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected, he ascended to the Father and went in and said, here is the perfect sacrifice. I am it. He did not say that arrogantly. He said that truthfully. And what we find in verse 15 is that Christ's payment was the real payment. Read verse 15 with me again. He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What that tells me is, is that when all those animal sacrifices were being offered, God was saying, God who exists out of time could see the death of Christ and he could see the animal sacrifice and the faith of those people who brought those sacrifices, and he said, it's enough. Not that that ever took away the sin, but that the death of Christ, which in our mind was several hundred thousand, or several thousand years later, we think, wow, that's a long time, but God's looking at the whole picture, and he says, that sacrifice will take care of all of this. Christ's payment was the real payment. One author said this, the first covenant could never remove moral guilt or the penalty of sin. Yet, people were saved in the ages before the advent of Christ. God was free to justify repentant sinners because the crucifixion of Christ was divinely viewed as a finished work in the eternal decree of redemption. 1 Peter 1.20 and Revelation 13.8 say this, Christ was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. God chose me back then, and in God's mind, Christ was already slain to pay for my sins. Wow. Look at verse 25. We read the difference between Christ's sacrifice and that of the Old Testament. He offered him, not that he should offer himself often. There is a, a major religious group today that tells us every time you sin, Christ gets poked and bleeds again. Every time you sin. Every time you sin, he suffers. He is constantly suffering, paying for your sin. I'm sorry. He suffered once. Verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year. Then he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
One sacrifice offered one time and the payment was made. Well, verse 28 summarizes this passage. I considered calling this sermon salvation from A to Z and the A would be the calling and the Z would be the payment. Look at verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of... Write your name in there. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of Dave Lunsford. He paid for my sin. He did not pay for his own sin. He had no sin. He was my substitute. In the Old Testament, the animals were substitutes for the sinners. Christ paid for my sin. 1 Peter 2.24 Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. J. Vernon McGee, who was with the Lord, worshiping in that real temple today, a famous Bible teacher from the past generation, said this, There is only one of two places for your sin. It's either on you or it's on Christ. Which is it today, friend? You know, even some of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior like to hang on to our sin as though we are so bad, God couldn't possibly forgive us. If you've never believed in Christ, your sin is still on you. Christ suffered for it, but until you put your faith in him, your sin is not transferred and taken away from you. This week I saw an encouraging story in the paper about a young boy from Iraq. Maybe you've seen this it's been there several times in the last few weeks he lost all of his family as, as I understand the story he lost all of his family and both of his arms in the recent war and some of the bombing and that's not very encouraging but the actions of the country of Saudi Arabia are encouraging they said we're gonna make sure he gets taken care of and they said we're going to fly him to England on one of our government-owned planes and we're going to take him to the hospital and he's going to get healed up and we're going to get him fitted for prosthetic arms and we're going to take care of him. Now you know what's significant about that? Do you remember to the first Gulf War what started that war? Iraq invaded Kuwait and Saudi Arabia is right in the neighborhood Iraq is the aggressor, but now the neighbor's coming around saying, we'll take care of you. You know what Ephesians 2 says about us? It says we were aliens from God. We were strangers. We were his enemies. And even in that kind of relationship, God came in and said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to bring you to heaven with me. Have you accepted God's gracious gift? Can you imagine that little boy in Iraq saying, I don't want none of your Saudi Arabian money. You'd think, what a jerk. What a fool. Well, if you're here today and you're spurning the grace of God, Heavenly Father, thank you 
for graciously calling and paying so that we could be saved. Wow. We are unworthy, but thankful. Father, work in our hearts. Father, I just pray especially for those who might not yet have believed in Christ, their substitute, their payment for sin. Open their eyes, open their hearts today. Help them to see the gracious Father that you are. I pray in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-384. 3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.